Today we're considering the last part of chapter 6 of our confession, and I want to read a chapter that is key to understanding not only that what we talked about last week, which was what? What did we talk about last week? Chapter was sin, punishment, and the fall thereof, right? And maybe unwisely, but we did cover a little bit about how sin is transmitted, original corruption is transmitted. But what I want us to really take a hold of and have in our mind is when we define original sin, it has two components to it. Does anybody remember what those are? Two components of original sin. Guilt and corruption. Okay? That is, we're guilty of Adam's sin, as Romans 5.12 tells us, that when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him, but also there's corruption that is passed to us. We're guilty under God's law, and because of that, not only are we guilty in some sort of legal sense, but we're righteous on the inside. We're guilty, and we have a, a twisted nature that is prone to all corruption. Adam was created upright, as Ecclesiastes tells us, but he sought out many schemes and we have a scheming nature built into us, wanting to do the same things that Adam did, displace God on his throne and have ourselves put upon the throne itself. And so today, we're moving past what original sin is and how it's conveyed, even though a lot of that's speculation. We're going to how does sin affect us in paragraphs four and five. So... We have original sin and original corruption in our hearts. What, how does that affect us? Paragraph 4 says this. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Okay? That is, simply put, we are totally depraved in every part of our being. And from that depravity and twisting of nature comes forth from that every action of sin. Now, what I want to read to us, and we're going to go back to it, is Romans chapter 7, which is probably no surprise to us. Romans chapter 7 is the key text where Paul very clearly, as a believer, tells us about the relationship of sin in the believer's life, this remaining corruption and the internal struggle that that corruption brings about. Um, I'm going to read from verse 13 to the end, for time's sake. Did that which is good, meaning the law of God, did that which is good then bring death to me? That is, is it the law itself that caused death to be in me? He says, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, notice the present tense he uses, I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not want to, I, for I do not do what I want, but the, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. So, as we come to this place, this is one of the clearest places that we have in Scripture of original corruption existing in every human heart, but even in the believer. Now, this original corruption, as we see, says that we're wholly inclined to evil. We're wholly inclined to evil, and that's extremely strong terminology. In fact, the word utterly here, that we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, utterly is a distributive, okay? That it's utterly all three of those things. We are utterly indisposed, utterly disabled, and utterly made opposite to all good. Now, if we say that on the face of it, it might sound wrong to us. Because we know, we look in the world, and the most radical atheist, the most radical God-hater, does things that we consider good and are somewhat congruent with God's law. Right? We agree with that. The atheist Richard Dawkins, he can walk an old woman across the street. He probably loves his mother. And these are good things. But that's not what we're talking about here. Because good defined in Scripture is not good as man conceives it, but only good as God tells us what is good, right? He has told us what is good. And it is not possible for our souls to do any good apart from faith, first of all. But even in faith, we must do it perfectly, perpetually, and with perfect love to God and perfect love to neighbor, or else it is not the true good that God desires. And we are inclined to that. We're inclined to do everything in our hearts from a motive of evil, not loving God, and not having faith in the promises that he has given to us. And this is especially true when we consider the minds of the unbeliever. What text can we think of? Something about being behind the pulpit. I feel like I'm normal preaching. But what what text can we think of? that would remind us that we are utterly indisposed in our very nature to evil, to sin. <laughs> Romans 3? Oh, certainly, certainly. We read this last week. Um, Paul describes all the human race, and I, we read this over and over, and we lose the, the strength of it, but it is strong The universal language that Paul uses, none is righteous. No, not one. And lest we think that means holistically righteous, but there's a a piece of light in us. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That is, of our own nature, we don't have anybody that can say, I seek for God without anything that God does in me. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Notice, no one does good. No, not one. Biblically speaking, looking upon the world, we should be able to say, no one does good. Even in the midst of an act that seems congruent with God's law and with good, we don't say it's good in and of itself. We're, we're bent towards that. That's a good example. Uh, if you're in Romans, Romans chapter 8. Again, talking about the inclination of our hearts, being bent towards these things. Notice the mind is talked about as one of those internal elements that God has given us. Not a physical thing, not the brain necessarily, the mind, the spirit of man. Verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And notice, indeed, what does it say? It cannot. It cannot. The unbelieving mind does not have the ability to submit to God's law. It is unable. No power to do it. Okay? That's a key text for us to consider that the unrighteous, those who do not have the Holy Spirit regenerating them to love God's law, their mind is naturally hostile to what God tells it to do. Naturally hostile. And even if it agrees with that thing that it is good, it's hostile that God told him to do it. Does that make sense? It doesn't do it because God said to do it. It does it because he wants to do it in some way. Uh, Secondly, we would have Colossians 1.21 is a wonderful text, if you'll turn there with me. And again, what we're looking at is that we are wholly inclined to evil. Every part of us has been corrupted, and there's no part of us that is uh, bent towards good. We're bent towards doing wrong. Notice how Paul describes the Colossians prior to their conversion. And you, who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And again, this goes back to the language that we have in our culture. We say, well, he's a seeker after God. And, and God certainly works in somebody's heart, regenerates us, that we would be hungry for the things of God. But naturally, of our own flesh, we are hostile in mind. Not just neutral, okay? We're against it. We're hostile in our mind towards that thing. Have you ever had a, a person, probably in your family, that whatever they say to you, you just naturally are hostile in mind toward what they say to you? Like Matt and Joey, right? That was a joke. Uh, but Matt and Joey, in their playfulness, they, they, uh, they see that whatever the other person says naturally has to be wrong, right? And so that's how the natural mind is, in a much more serious and sinful way. That what God says to the natural human mind, the natural mind's hostile toward it. Okay? Even if it's good and righteous, like the tree in the garden of good and evil. It's a righteous law. Just don't eat the tree, and you won't die. And you have the tree of life to eat and live forever. Hostile in mind through the corruption of sin entering in through the, through the, um, the deception of the serpent. So, we are wholly inclined to evil. And that's very clear from our text, we are utterly indisposed and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. Now, 
As we consider that further, it might be true that we are not as evil or doing as much evil as we possibly could do. But the Bible is very clear that the, the reason for that is not man's flesh being good, but it's by the restraining grace and power of the Holy Spirit upon us. That if God were to totally withdraw from us in his grace, first of all, we would cease to exist, but we would be capable and love every type of evil. And, and this is true throughout history, isn't it, brothers and sisters? And I know we always bring up the Nazis as an example, but it's true. We, you see, men and women that would have been considered good prior to Hitler taking power engaged in the most ruthless and terrible acts against Jewish people. Why? Did something new be introduced into the human heart? Were they made more corrupt? I would say certainly not, but it was exposed in them. God withdrew himself from that nation at that time, and it was exposed who they truly were. We're wholly inclined to this. Do we have any other thoughts? Okay, thanks. Uh, one, one text that comes to mind with that, if you're kind of thinking about God being the one who restrains evil, is in Genesis... And I believe chapter 20, this isn't in my notes, so forgive me if I don't find it right away. Um, oh, yes, Genesis chapter 20 and verse 6. This is Abimelech, uh, the king, and he takes Sarah, Sarai, because Abraham said, she's my sister, right? And God confronts the king, and notice what he says to him. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Okay? We, we, we can naturally think that God doesn't have the right, in our natural Arminian way of thinking, God doesn't have the right to keep me back from what I want to do. Free will is the most important thing. This text, I think, plainly shows that that's not the case. God keeps us back from being as sinful as we can be. Okay, So, we are wholly inclined to evil. And that inclination, that corruption of nature, it leads to actual acts of transgression and sin coming from it. Right? And we're going to get this to, in the chapter of free will, but it's important for us to realize, are, do we have free will? We say, oh, yes, thank you. That, that's, that's good. That's good to say that. We do have free will, but we have free will according to our nature. Okay? As we've said before, a turtle has free will to do turtle things. Right? It does not have free will to do bird things. Right? It doesn't have the free will to fly. A sinner corrupt by nature, and this comes to me as I was meditating on this this week. Brothers and sisters, naturally, we are monsters. And I mean that. And we, we have a lot of imagery from our culture in our head of horror movies and things like that, right? Of a monster that by its very existence needs to die. It doesn't deserve to live just because it exists. Whether or not any actual things come from it or not, right? That's us. We are totally and holy crap. We are called the children of the devil in the Bible in multiple locations. We do his will. We are corrupt in our natures. And from that corruption, we are free. We have free will, but we have free will to do what monsters do. 
And that's evil. We can't do good because we don't have any good in our nature. Okay? So, from this proceed all actual transgressions. And two texts that I want us to see. Um, it's first Matthew chapter 15. We had the privilege of going over this a couple of months ago. Matthew 15. And here Christ gives one of the most sobering accounts of the human heart and why sin proceeds from us. You might recall the Pharisees and the scribes that they believe that defilement of my soul and your soul comes from outside of us, right? It's things that constrain upon us that cause me to be defiled. But Jesus has something totally opposite to say. Notice that he says in Matthew chapter 15, and we'll just read in verse 16. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? That is the very root of who we are. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come, notice, actual transgressions, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. It is from the root of who we are in our character and our nature that these transgressions come from. And James chapter 1, and this is a text that is wonderful to consider the process of sin, especially verses 14 and 15, but we'll start... In verse 12, where James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire, right? He's not tempted for something that his nature doesn't like, right? A a turtle being tempted with, this is an illustration off the top of my head, which is probably unwise. A turtle being tempted with free airline tickets or something. That doesn't mean anything to a turtle, right? It's not tempting. But a turtle being tempted with turtle food, um, he's lured by his own nature. That's the idea I'm trying to get across here. We're tempted by our own desires and inclinations. Anytime that we sin, we can mark it down. I sin because I desired to do that sin. And I was lured away by my own desire. By something external? Certainly. But it was my desire that, that drew me to that thing. It was my desire that drew me to that thing. So, we should see, first of all, how does sin affect us? We ought to have a biblical, and uh, I'll give you a word to... Think about it, if you look up systematic theology, hamartiology, okay? So it's the, the doctrine of sin. We have to have a proper hamartiology that original corruption makes us wholly inclined to evil in our unregenerate state and that all actual sins proceed from it. And then paragraph 5, specifically concerning believers, okay? 
How does this affect believers? The corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated. Notice this, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, okay, yet both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Okay? So first thing that we see here is that this corruption remains in us. Right? This is contrary to the Roman Catholic Church and other um, heretical views that would say that at baptism, original guilt and corruption is kind of cleansed from the human soul and there only remains kind of this, this idea of concupiscence in the Roman theology. But it remains in us truly. Okay? That's what we read from Romans chapter 7. Paul is struggling. And every Christian that I've ever met, in the counseling office, in the pulpit, wherever it might be, and you read Romans chapter 7, doesn't your soul say, oh, it's my experience. It's the experience of my soul. I don't do the good that I want to do, and the evil that I don't want to do is what I keep on doing. I fall into the same sin over and over again. This is because, brothers and sisters, Corruption remains in us until the Lord come. That's why it's important that we have a view of death as we're talking about Ecclesiastes. That death for the Christian is the abolishing of sin in us. The presence, the corruption of our natures no longer will be at the moment of death. We look forward to that. But until that time, there remains in believers corruption. And we are put into a state of warfare. And even though there be some... Maybe rightly, uh, theologians J.C. Ryle, Brother Caleb's brought up to me, that would say that we don't have two natures, so that's a bad way of talking about it. I don't have better vocabulary than that at, at the present time. We have two natures in us that are at war with one another. We have a sinful, fleshly nature, and we have a new nature, a spiritual nature that's put in, been put into our hearts. So this corruption remains in us. And I will remind us, from what we read in Romans 7 specifically, of... Verse 24 of our text, where Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And 1 John chapter 1, and verses 8 through 10, text that we know very truly. If we don't have a corrupt nature still remaining in us, I don't know that we can make sense of this verse, these three verses really. Um, 1 John Chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Notice, if we confess our sins, that is homologion, if we say the same thing that God says about our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us, Right? Notice that, that if we say that I no longer have a corrupt nature and I don't sin, or even I would say it's, not, it's possible for me not to sin, right? We're making God a liar because God has told us that we have a corrupt nature still existing with us, within us, okay? Proceeds all actual transgression and guilt from that, okay? So we have this remaining in us. Do we have any thoughts or questions about that in particular, that corruption remains in us? What else does it say, though? Although corruption remains in us, this is the good news, right? 
Through Christ, it is pardoned. That is original guilt, right? So if original sin, again, to, to put it into our minds, is original guilt and original corruption, the guilt is done away with in Jesus Christ. The inclination of my heart to not do God's law and to be adverse at times to doing what he says has been pardoned through Jesus Christ. But it's also been mortified. Um, and I'd, I'd ask Brother Caleb, he went through, first, for, through Colossians chapter 3, right? Talking about the mortification. What does mortification point us to primarily? Yes, yes. It's the death that is ultimately applied, but not in the end. Um, it's not a final rule. Right, it's still present, right? So, Brother Caleb, if you couldn't hear him, to mortify is, is to make dead, but it can still be existing in us, okay? So, I think that's helpful because sometimes we can say, well, we're dead to our sins, and we think, well, that means I should have, sin should have no effect on me. And I shouldn't sin. At all, right? This isn't what this is talking about. Christ on the cross truly crucified the old man. He's dead on the cross, but maybe in another way of speaking, that old man's still on the cross and he still has some, some uh, motions in him. Like a chicken when he cut its head off, right? Joe doesn't like that analogy. Uh, <laughs> but it still has some life going in the members, so to speak, even though it's truly been mortified, you can see the, the actions of it still taking place. But it's truly dead and is going to have all action ceasing it at some point. Okay, So it has been truly mortified. And when we get to sanctification, we'll see the sanctification, just as sin infects utterly all the parts of the body, soul, the mind, sanctification, when we are saved in Christ, it truly works in all parts of our body to bring us out of that state, though not completely in this life, okay? And so, lastly, and maybe more difficultly, I don't know if we would struggle with this necessarily here, but we notice this, yeah, both itself and the first motions thereof are truly and properly sin, okay? That is, the original corruption that we have in our nature, okay? Our inclination to do evil are bent away from doing good, okay, before actual sin takes place, before an action takes place, those things are truly and properly sin. Now, where this comes into focus for us in our modern day, and uh, I only pick on this because it's, it's really the most obvious thing to us, the, the PCA, a PCA church in um, St. Louis recently had the Revoice Conference, or within the last couple of years, right? And this is um, people coming together that struggle with same-sex attraction and homosexual desire and to come together and say that it is not the desire that is sinful, but it's only the action that is sinful, right? And that we can take upon ourselves the, the name and the title, I'm a gay Christian, right? Because that desire in, it, in, in itself is no way. It is twisted in some sense, and it's a result of the fall. It's not a healthy desire to have, they would say, okay? But in and of itself, that desire is not sinful, okay? Where 
we would say that the Bible tells us, and I hope to show very clearly, that my corruption of heart is sin. My desire to do evil before I do it is sin. And I deserve to be condemned before I even do the thing that I want to do that is sinful. Okay? Can we think of any text that would show us that? Brother. What is the 10th commandment, Joe, for us? You shall not covet. God, when he gave the Ten Commandments, he gave the last one as the internal principle of of the heart. Covetousness. It exists only within the mind and the heart, not necessarily going out to the actual actions. It says you shall not cover your neighbor's wife's property, right? And therefore, we see here that before the man goes and takes the neighbor's wife, God said you shouldn't even desire to do that. In fact, covetousness, I believe it's epithemia in the Greek here, was mentioned in Romans chapter 7. And that's how, that's how Paul translated this word. And it's often translated as just desire in the Bible. Now, again, Romans chapter 7 and verse 7 of 7. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? Paul says, by no means. Yet if it had not been the law, I would not have known sin For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all sorts, all kinds of covetousness. It's very clear from the Tenth Commandment and Paul's understanding of the Tenth Commandment that the desire itself, the covetousness itself, before it bears fruit in action, is sin. I would have us turn to Galatians chapter 5 as well. Just again, uh, these are the key texts for this. Galatians chapter 5. In verses 16 and 17. And I know these are familiar texts, but I want us to think about them. And what it says primarily about the desire. And if that desire itself is truly and properly sin. Notice, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And notice, he defines a little more carefully what these desires do. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And the thing that struck me, I think thinking about this in a way that I haven't before is can we really think about desires of the heart and say that desires properly defined are against the Spirit of God? My desires are against God's Holy Spirit and say that they're not sin. That seems ridiculous, doesn't it? How can any man have a desire that's contrary to God and it not be sinful? And it not be sinful. And we see... In verse 24 of Galatians 5, Paul using, I believe, this word epithemia again, that he says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, and notice, with its passions and desires, right? We are called, brothers and sisters, not just to to restrain our flesh from the outward working of sin. That's what the Pharisees did, and they did it very well. 
We're called to crucify the flesh with its passions and with its desires. And the reason this is good news to us is that it is only when we can truly see what sin is that we have a solution for it in Jesus Christ. If desire is not truly and properly sin, I am not going to seek the Lord to crucify it in my heart, and I'm not going to seek pardon for it. But this truly, I think, in a very profound way, shows us our true sinfulness to a degree that we often don't think about it in order that we would feel hopeless outside of a mediator and that we would flee to Jesus Christ who not only performed all the external actions of the law perfectly but a man who had an absolutely perfect and pure heart that when the devil came to tempt him there was no sin in his heart to lure him out to do what Adam did and what you and I do every day he was perfect and pure spotless lamb of God But on the cross, he was punished not just for the things you've done, but for who you are. He became sin. Now, that doesn't mean he transformed in his ontological or his his being nature, right? But it means that the corruption even that exists within us was placed upon the Son of God. We need a perfect mediator to do that for us and to give us his righteousness. Not only do you have... All the things he did credited to your account. You have who he is credited to your account. Isn't that wonderful news? That when you struggle in your soul that I keep doing the thing I don't want to do. But I have the credit of Jesus Christ who always did what he wanted to do. And that was perfectly obey God in his law. Do you have any questions or thoughts? Any other texts that come to mind? That we could consider? Five. Yes, yes. Brother, yes. And and this is another just very clear, explicit text. And because we have a couple minutes, let's turn there just to see that. Matthew chapter 5. And again, in this chapter, Jesus is acting as the perfect interpreter of God's moral law. Okay? He says, you've heard that it was said, that is, by the teachers that you have in this generation and previous generations of old going before you, they have taught this and this alone. For example, you shall not murder in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. But notice, everybody that's angry... That anger not coming out and producing actual transgression, yelling, screaming, calling somebody a fool, hitting them, killing them. That anger is counted in God's sight as murder. And we know this, don't we? We see in verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And again, what was taught to them was merely external. Don't do the act. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
doesn't proceed to the action, lustful intent, has already in God's sight committed adultery with her in his heart. These texts are exceedingly clear, I think, brothers and sisters. And so, rather than making us, this should make us feel exceedingly sinful, but it should just make us glorify in the Lord who took away sin like this from people like us. Sin like this from people like us. And again, I just put forth to you clearly, knowing this corruption itself and the first motions of it are sinful, and we know that our forgiveness, and knowing those two things, it results in greater love to God. And the text for that is Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, where you remember the scene where Jesus goes into Simon, not Simon Peter, another Simon, into his house to speak with him. And a woman comes in who this man says is a great sinner, a prostitute, and was washing his feet, right? You remember the scene? And this man thinks in his head, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know that this woman's a sinner. Notice what is, what is said, verses 41 through 50. Jesus, knowing the thoughts of his heart, says this, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, we know. Simon, was he less sinful than this woman? In God's sight. Say no. But she loved more because she was forgiven more. I would say the only logical interpretation of that is she knew her sin better. She knew her sin better than Simon did. And this doctrine, brothers and sisters, is important. The more we know our sinfulness, the more we love God because he freely forgives sinners like us. Okay. Any any questions, thoughts? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we come before you, and it is painful to look into the mirror of the law and see the sinfulness of our souls. It's painful for me, God, and I, I don't delight in it, but God, what a sweet thing it is to see the free love offered through our Savior. God, I pray today that you would help us to, to know our sinfulness, God, but not to stay there and feel condemned, but rather like this woman to go to Christ knowing that not because she washed his feet is she saved, not because she loved much was she saved. She was saved because she had faith in him. God, I pray that we would trust the promises that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, even monsters like us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.